Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Chad's military has violated the Constitution to install the son of deceased leader Idris Deby. Why is the international community going along with this undemocratic move? And Zimbabwe's president is increasing his hold on power. How do human rights defenders challenge the president's move? Plus, we discuss President Biden's forthcoming Summit for Democracy. How do we ensure that African issues and African voices are not treated as sideshows? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Chad's new military council suspended the constitution, dissolved the government, and instituted an 18-month political transition. Why is the international community turning a blind eye to these anti-democratic moves? Joining me to discuss Chad and other topics are Musa Kondo, Mali Country Director for the Accountability Lab, Tandakile Moyo, a Zimbabwean writer and human rights defender, and Francis Brown, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Okay, on April 20th, Chad's Transitional Military Council named 37-year-old Mahamat Idris Deby as the interim president following the death of his father on the battlefield. Following the announcement, a military council deployed the army around the capital and imposed a curfew. It also dissolved the country's government and parliament and named Debbie's 38-year-old son as transitional leader. He heads the elite presidential guard that oversaw his father's security. They did not follow the constitution, which indicates the National Assembly president should take over. They did not observe the Constitution's requirement for elections to take place within 90 days of the president's death. Instead, the Transitional Military Council gave themselves a year and a half and recruited a bunch of civilians to serve in the government, including as prime minister. And this is truly, in my opinion, a fig leaf for what is a military takeover. Musa, how do you interpret these events in Chad? Do you have any confidence this is going to usher in a democratic transition or democratic governance? Hi, John, and hi, everyone. For me, this is a great question. It's not really what people expect because uh, democratic process would not come from the sky. We have a look on what's been happening in Chad since a couple of years, I mean, two, three decades. You will see every single president at least come to the power through rebellions or through arms. So when they arrived also, they did not try to build a democratic process even to army out of a democratic space. So this had been happening and going on through Idris Deby Itno when he was in power. That's why if you have a quick look in Sahel region right now, we have Chadian soldiers as one of the fighters, one of the strongest and the powerful uh, military. So it would be very hard for democratic fighters to overthrow this process, even though Idris Deby is no more president. So for me, it's really pessimistic to see democratic things happening in the, in the coming days. Yeah, I'm pessimistic, too. And it just seems like there's this new playbook, right? It's, oh, we're going to have a long transition. It seems like now 18 months or even longer is becoming standard. We'll co-opt a couple of politicians to be figureheads. Maybe we'll promise a national dialogue. And that seems to be enough to satisfy both the African Union or, or regional bodies or international partners. 
And because this coup happens, you know, just a short of a year after the coup in Mali, I wonder, Musa, do you think that there's learning, mutual learning between these two coups? And how should the African Union be responding? The international community, including African Union, has not been clear enough because since the couple of years, they have been supporting the dictatorship regime of Idris Debi Itno, even though it was uh, helping them in Sahel region as fighters, as combatants against jihadists or terrorist groups. So they didn't care much more about what the expectations or the aspiration of Chadian people. They were just taking in consideration what this country, as they say, reservoir of uh, fighters, of strong soldiers, but they forget about the aspiration of the 16 million of Chadians who are not combating, who are civil societies, who expect or want more freedom space, civil society actions and all that. So comparing what happened in Mali, as we've seen international communities through African Union and ECOWAS been very strict about transition, about the ones to run transition, even to stop collaboration and cooperation with a lot of our international bodies. We did not have this happen in, in Chad. It was like, uh, oh, this is your way of life. So we just let you handle with what you know the best. It is a big turning point now for African Union to emphasize on uh, returning back to democratic path and uh, expecting what will happen or just let them go. But what's happening in Chad, we are afraid this may be a continuously way of life, even in Mali, because uh, the way when military coup happened in the 18th of August and the way the junta is nominating in every single post a military, a colonel, in Mali. So that means they don't want to leave the power. That means we are heading to another very unstable period for Mali. Francis, I think what Musa is saying here is so important, right? There's an inconsistency in the international response to these various instances of democratic backsliding and the advocacy for democratic transition. And there could be on the ground different actors pointing out that there is an inconsistency and then deciding perhaps and not to listen to the better angels on their shoulders. The Biden administration hasn't been as strong as I would have liked when it comes to Chad. I mean, they said they supported a transition, a peaceful transition of power in accordance with the Chadian constitution, but that's about it. We can debate on whether there should be coup restrictions here, but wherever side of that argument you land, clearly more should be said and done. And I, I was hoping, Francis, you could help us zoom out and what does the U.S. response to Chad tell us about this broader commitment by the Biden administration towards democracy? And maybe you could do a little counterfactual for us. And if you were still at the NSC, what would you be pressing for? Yeah. So if I were still at the NSC and I would be wearing my director for democracy hat, so my job would be to be the gadfly for democracy in the policy conversations, I think that I would first make some lofty strategic points on Chad, and then I would make some pragmatic brass tacks points on Chad. So to start with the lofty strategic points I would make, I would remind my colleagues that President Biden has been resoundingly clear that reinforcing global democracy is a central priority of his administration. And you see that in the president's speeches, you see that in his interim national security strategy, you see it in Secretary Blinken's remarks, and I think that's very real. So then the key question for all of us is how that agenda turns into a concrete Biden administration legacy on democracy. What we've learned 
is that strategies on democracy and, you know, even big summits having to do with democracy are important. But what's equally or more important is what happens when there's a critical juncture for democracy in a specific country. These critical junctures for democracy pop up at times that we can't necessarily predict, and they often happen without warning. And I would say Chad is now at that crossroads. I don't think the window has passed, but I think the coming months are going to be crucial. So then that would lead me into sort of the more pragmatic brass tacks points of what do we do about this? I would say my first point would be we need to be getting real and serious about doing everything we can to ensure a civilian transition and that free and fair elections do occur in 18 months as claimed. I don't think we should overstate U.S. influence, but I also don't think we should understate it. We do have a role to play here. So REC 1 is to start planning now for this free, fair, and technically competent election in 18 months. 18 months sounds like a long time, and it's highly problematic if it gets extended. But when it actually comes towards organizing, mobilizing an opposition, particularly since Debbie intentionally tried to keep the opposition and civil society fragmented and weakened Chad, 18 months is actually not that long a time. 18 months is also not that long to organize a technically capable elections body to do logistics. My recommendation number two would be we need to get an actual U.S. ambassador in place as soon as possible, not a charge because everything else we're doing really depends on diplomatic bandwidth and diplomatic heavy hitting. My recommendation number three would be we need to engage Chadians, of course, especially civil society, especially political opposition, both to lend legitimacy and encouragement. Fourth, I would say we really need to keep the attention and keep the international community aligned and engaged for these 18 months. We need to engage the AU for sure. We also probably have to have some strong but quiet conversations with our French allies. It seems to me they have sort of a, a different prioritization than I would like us to have in terms of interest in the continuity of their military base. My point to probably the French in the, is that in the long run, having a free and fair and representative government in Chad is actually going to help it be a more stable partner, not a less stable one. And then we need to plan for long-term support and follow up afterwards. No, I think those are really important recommendations, and particularly this idea of engaging early, often, and laying down some markers. My skepticism is that they will actually have elections in 18 months. The Constitution right now says that you have to be 45 years of age to be president, which means that Debbie's son, the interim president, could not qualify to run for elections under the suspended Constitution. I think all of these are real problems that we need to be thinking about right now and addressing. But we're going to have a chance at the final segment of our show to talk about principles and statements versus, you know, how to actually move things on the ground. So why don't we uh, just put a pause on this conversation and we'll get back to it, because I really want to talk about our second topic, which is Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, the ruling party, ZANU-PF, has been tightening its grip on power. In April, the parliament approved legislation that removed a clause in the Constitution on electing vice presidents and extending the tenure of senior judges who will now be appointed by the president in consultation with the Judicial Service Commission. And that's instead of being subjected to public interviews, as is the case now. 
Rights groups and opposition parties in Zimbabwe are sounding the alarm over constitutional amendments that they believe will compromise the independence of the judiciary. So Tanda Kile, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it feels like the situation is going from bad to worse in Zimbabwe. Can you talk a little about these latest steps by the ruling party and what do you think this means for democracy, freedom of speech and human rights? Okay, thank you so much. You know what? It's scary how the situation in Chad, what is happening in Chad right now, is what happened in Zimbabwe in 2017, where a military coup took place and the world just said, you know what? Let's give them a chance. Let's try and do this to make sure that they do it right. I mean, uh, it seems the world fails to call out a coup when it's taking place to just say this is unconstitutional this is a coup and that's what happened in Zimbabwe so what we see happening now even these constitutional amendments they are simply continuation of the unconstitutionality that we allowed to happen in 2017 so by coming into power through a coup what the current president and the military were trying to do was to capture the state they were trying to capture the state so that they consolidate their power and they rule by force because they realized that come elections time in 2018, President Mugabe was probably not going to win the election. So they decided to just throw out any pretense of being a democracy, of Zimbabwe being a democracy by saying we do not want Mugabe to be in power anymore because we're going to lose the election as ZANU-PF in 2017. So we're going to put our own person who we think is going to win. I mean, the state has the legislature, executive and judiciary. So when they captured the executive of the state by installing their own president, they were well on their way to a one party state by force without the people's consent. So what we see happening now, these constitutional amendments, it is now the government trying to capture other arms of the state, which is the judiciary and the legislature. So how they did it is by strong arming the opposition out of parliament through unconstitutional means. They managed to fire MPs from parliament and make sure that the only people that are in parliament today are people that would vote for these constitutional amendments. And one of the amendments of the constitution gives the president the power to elect the chief justice without the interviews, the public interviews and stuff. So what this means is that this is a final nail to the coffin. The ZANU-PF party now completely controls the state in Zimbabwe. We have people languishing in prison without trial. Like we have these three ladies from the opposition party, Joanna Mamombe, Cecilia Chimbiri, and uh, Netai Marova, who were abducted and tortured. And the government managed to do all these things with impunity because the courts are on their side. They were doing this before they amended the constitution. Imagine what is going to happen now that they are successfully amending the constitution to make sure that the judiciary is firmly in their control, the parliament is firmly in their control. It means that Zimbabwe is now under complete state capture. There is no chance for democracy. There is no chance for freedom of speech. We are on a downward spiral, and I have no idea how we are going to stop this. You know, there was this recent article in the conversation about uh, female comedians in Zimbabwe. And one of the quotes I really liked was, well, I don't know if it, it's a great quote in terms of the situation in Zimbabwe, but it was powerful. And the comedian said, 
you have freedom of expression, but not freedom after expression. And I think that matches with some of the work that you've been doing, Tandakile, particularly this article that you had in March in the Daily Maverick, where you talked about how human rights defenders, they have to hide from the police in order to survive. And therefore, you know, while this final nail is being driven into the coffin, human rights defenders are unable to protest, they're unable to press for reforms. And you ask, I think very poignantly, who will defend and protect the protectors of the public? Now, Francis, the U.S. has been really clear from the beginning about its opposition to these abuses in Zimbabwe. There's legislation like Zadera. There are these sanctions. I think there's a lot more that we could be doing, though, particularly on corruption. There was a recent article in Bloomberg that showed how through these transactions, these very difficult to sort of unpack transactions, these mining sector companies, by the way, are multi-billion dollar are tied to politically connected businessmen and people close to the administration, to the uh, Mnangagwa administration. They're sanctioned by the U.S. and they still do their job. So is there a better policy answer for Tandakile to think about fighting corruption, protecting human rights defenders, preventing this state from going deeper and deeper into the hole of authoritarianism and autocracy? What should we be doing yeah, this is such a hard policy question, and I don't know if I'm going to come up with any response that is commensurate with the challenges that Tandakile just laid out so starkly. So I want to just say that at the outset. Yes, the U.S. has for a long time had Zadera on the books as a law. President Biden just renewed targeted sanctions again this year. So those are some steps, but they're clearly not a full answer to this situation. I do think the anti-corruption angle is a really important one, Judd. I agree with you. And this is, in general, anti-corruption is one of the areas of emphasis that the Biden administration is trying to move out on. So I think this is an important one. The broader challenge of civil society and opposition and activists being targeted, it's obviously not limited to Zimbabwe. The Obama administration really tried to make progress on this. They started something called the Stand with Civil Society Initiative. I would say that momentum was definitely lost during the previous Trump administration, but there are aspects of that that I think should be harvested and built upon. And then finally, I think there's another angle here to discuss that the U.S. will need to drill down more deeply, which is in addition to all the other ways in which Zimbabwe has rising authoritarianism, it's also a place of rising digital authoritarianism. The government uses Chinese digital surveillance technology from CloudWalk, which is a Chinese firm as part of their participation in the Belt and Road Initiative. My colleague over at Carnegie, Steve Feldstein, has written extensively about this. And I think this is a pretty new area of US policy formulation. How do we push back against this kind of authoritarianism? And probably speaks to the need for the Biden administration to come up with a broader strategic response to the Belt and Road Initiative that has democracy at its core. I think the last thing on sort of the policy response that's so hard, and as Tonda Keeley knows well, is that there's often a tension between trying to help human rights defenders and civil society without putting them more into focus, having them risk more harm, having them be labeled foreign agents. So I'm interested in her thoughts on that. And that finally, Western sanctions uh, in many countries, including Zimbabwe, are sometimes pointed to by the leadership or by regional countries as kind of a scapegoat for Zimbabwe's economic troubles and corruption mismanagement. So, you know, blame it on the Western sanctions. So it is an incredibly thorny policy problem, but I agree we need to be doing more. 
Well, I definitely want to ask Tanda Kile what her thoughts are on that question, because it's something that I grappled with when I was in government and something I think a lot about when, you know, now in my current position is how do friends of Zimbabwe, international friends of Zimbabwe help? And Tanda Kile, I think the question that Francis posed is so important. How should the international community position themselves on these issues to push for democracy, to push for freedom of speech without making the lives of advocates harder? I do not think that helping a human rights defender in Zimbabwe would put them in any more danger than they are already in. And so if people who are in a position to assist human rights defenders to do their work in more secure environments also feel they are trying to protect them by staying away, I really think that is a flawed point of view because we are exposed, we are in danger. As as I speak, you know, I have colleagues that are in prison. There is Makomborero Haruz Zivisha. He's a human rights defender who has been a target of the state since he was in university. He's 28 and he was expelled from university when he was 21. He's been arrested 38 times, no acquittal. He has basically nowhere to run. But the state has already branded him an agent of the West, but there is no West that is backing him. There is nobody that is backing him except his conviction and his belief that we must fight injustice. I don't think there is anything that anyone can do for me now that would put me in any more danger than I already am in. But that said, what the world can do for human rights defenders and not just in Zimbabwe I do not think it's something that can come from governments because governments have made it clear that because of all these sovereignty issues and diplomacy issues, they really cannot overstep into other countries' businesses. So this leaves civil society with the responsibility to stand up for each other when things happen. I mean, we all know what is happening to Navalny in Russia, and that is because powerful media houses and powerful human rights defenders have spoken out about it to the point that even I in Zimbabwe know that there is this injustice taking place in Russia. It is because civil society has spoken out about it. So if every day as a human rights defender or civil society organization, you wake up and you just check what is happening in the world, what human rights defender is at risk, and you amplify those stories, I think that will go a long way in offering solidarity to human rights defenders in small countries that are otherwise unknown. Oppressive and repressive states are afraid of bad publicity. That is why you hear cases of the Zimbabwean government paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to lobby firms in the United States to clean their image. It means they do care what the world thinks. So What are we as the world doing to protect citizens? There has to be some public protection mechanism that works because it seems international law at this point is not working for people on the ground. It's not the responsibility of governments alone. It's the responsibility of everybody in the world to say, we want to live in a world where human rights violations are something that we do not tolerate as a world. And that is the responsibility of peoples and governments. So I have four takeaways from such eloquent recommendations. First is that we need to lean in and support human rights defenders. Don't get all worked up and tie yourself into knots about what it may look like. Just do it, right? That's one. 
two is don't let what's happening in Africa be divorced from this global regression around democracy and global attacks on human rights defenders. They are one and they are the same. And as part of that, number three would be facilitating these relationships between civil societies leaders, you know, whether it's Russians and Zimbabweans, Venezuelans and Tanzanians, you know, let's have a conversation between these different communities. And finally, let's think about some of the mechanisms that we can put into place. And this is all a great preview, Tendakile, for our final topic, which is on the Summit for Democracy. And I think for the Summit of Democracy, which is President Biden's big initiative, we can do some of the things that you're talking about, or hopefully in this podcast, we can make some recommendations that grow from your points. But first, probably, Francis, just give us the 101 on this summit. What do we know about it so far? Who's going to be invited? What are the outcomes, deliverables? Give us everything. All right. So I can't give you everything because not everything is known, but here's what we know so far. So the Summit for Democracy is one of the Biden administration's flagship efforts. The idea of the summit is that it's meant to underscore what we were talking about earlier, that the Biden administration places a really high priority on reinforcing democracy, both overseas and at home. So democracy is one of its signature agenda items. The other purpose of the summit is to send the message that democracy delivers for people living in democracies. In terms of when it will occur, the hope is to hold it within the first year of Biden's term, which obviously could go into January of next year. But as you would imagine, because of the pandemic, there's a lot of uncertainty about how this can be done. So a date has not been set thus far. And I think the hope is to have it in person. I think the other hope of this summit is that it will galvanize progress, jumpstart progress, and that there will be other follow-up later on. But the idea is not here to start a new institution or a new democratic alliance. Ideally, I think some of this follow-up will happen in other settings that, for example, Open Government Partnership has summits, G7 meetings, their anti-corruption summits. So there's other ways in which initiatives that are launched in this summit can be followed up on. The summit is going to have three top-level themes, as far as we understand. One is human rights, one is anti-corruption, and the third is countering authoritarianism. However, I think it still remains to be seen how those three themes translate into a specific agenda. As far as who is invited, as you can imagine, Judd, from your own previous work on NSC staff, I think this is going to be one of the most challenging topics for our colleagues still in government. And I think I can probably speak for both of us that we don't envy the work that they have to do making those choices. But in addition to countries who will be invited, there's also, I think, a strong interest in inviting civil society representatives. I'd also say that for countries who are invited, it looks like there will be some kind of price of admission. Commitments need to be made on democratic reforms and improvements. And I think that will go for the U.S. as well. You know, we'll make our own commitments. So a lot to be worked out, but it is an exciting opportunity. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it all unfolds. Yeah, as am I. Um, I've written about this uh, both for the Wilson Center and then I expanded on that for a CSIS. This is clearly going to be a food fight, Francis, over who gets to get the invitations, no doubt. But I guess my number one concern is that African issues will be 
front and center. And I mean that both in terms of specific challenges in Africa, but also that African voices, people like Tandakile, are brought into these conversations, are not a sideshow, are being asked to wade in on all of these key agenda items to bring their perspective, to also to have these uh, civil society engagements. I mean, I do not want it to be, and I fear it could become this sort of sideshow or tokenism. And that's going to be incredibly important to sort of break with the past where African voices and African players are, are there because it's global, but not really in the driver's seat with other countries in terms of moving this conversation forward. And I think Musa, your organization, Accountability Lab, has real useful insights that you could be sharing and helping to shape the summit because Accountability Lab thinks a lot about advocacy, how to do name and fame, how to uh, make sure that these issues are front and center in a way that resonate with African publics, African governments. So could you talk a little bit, Musa, from your perspective, what are some of the things that Accountability Lab does that could be really useful for the planners of this summit? Yeah, thanks for my business. Uh, this is a great point. As you mentioned about our work in the continent, I think it's very important to take things differently from uh, what we know and uh, what the relationship used to be back in the time. And the election of Biden administration is something incredible and a great opportunity for all of us, even though the ones in Francophone Africa, which is really like uh, when you see like left in uh, its side, which we have uh, the Sahel region now, which is one of the biggest problems, even not Africa, but the war faces right now to deal differently. The difference is not when you take the expectations of African population, the growing of African population, that means people expect or people work for the change. We can see this in dynamics every day. The one they are angry of change very small elite cannot control or hypothecate this change the majority of African people want today. When you say the dynamics in terms of youth, in terms of our populations, in terms of our, the movement in the country, you can just see this right away. The new session of Biden could really think deeper on how to design a new way of collaboration with our countries. Because when you stop collaboration, is not the ones who did or make the military coup, this stuff will hurt the most the population. The population which want the same change as uh, US government expect or work to make democracy happens in our countries. The way to redesign this process would be something incredible. And this is why accountability lab works to make the good practices bring in the table so people can inspire and understand we don't just have this corruption or this bad governance, but we have individuals, we have a lot of initiatives working or going through the continent where we can lean on as best men to build something new, something people everywhere expecting and working hard to make it happen. So Tanakile Musa says that we have to redesign how we collaborate. We have to go beyond checkboxing. Do you think the summit could be a platform for redesigning relationships, deepening collaboration, taking relationships between civil society groups across the world to the next level. I mean, what recommendations would you have for the organizers of this event? Thank you so much. Well, as to whether I think the summit will do that, I have no idea because I am not sure what the summit is hoping to do. Is it a conversation about these things? Is it 
research into seeing the way forward. So uh, I'm not sure, but it is clear that there is need for such a space where people can discuss human rights in the world and have a conversation on countering authoritarianism. So my advice, I think, to the people organizing the summit would be that they try by all means to ensure that part of the people that they have in their summit, people who are experiencing human rights violations firsthand and people who are living in authoritarian countries, as well as people who are committing these human rights violations. I think there is need for a conversation on how do we counter these things? Why are they happening? You know, so usually some of these summits have people just theorizing, you know, academics. And I feel there's very little effort to actually hear from people experiencing these things, what is going on and what their hope for the future is. So I hope they'll be part of the summit. I mean, I think that's the intention. And if this is a summit about theorizing, we've wasted a whole year of time. I don't know, Francis, if you you agree with that. But, you know, this is an opportunity to do exactly what you said, Tandakile, is to you know, bring, bring the voices of those on the ground fighting for democracy to the corridors of power to talk truth. But there's something else that I really care a lot about. And if you listen to the podcast, you've heard me say this before. But the U.S. government has long had this idea of positive models when it comes to their Africa policy. This was in the Obama strategy, which I helped contribute to, but it's really been a mainstay of U.S. approach to the continent for decades. In other words, there's always this inclination to talk so glowingly about certain countries and certain leaders and then uphold them as a model. And I think that's unless there's some new thinking, it's going to happen at the summit. And my problem with that is, is that, you know, democracy is more multidimensional than the way that that's presented, right? Good leaders or bad leaders, those we put on a pedestal and those we put in the penalty box. And so, Francis, I want to get your sense of, is there a way that we can have this conversation much more nuanced and particularly that we could talk about what's happening in African countries against global standards, right? To underscore that African democracies are just like ours. They're flawed and they make as much progress as they may regress. How do we have a serious conversation about democracy in the context of this summit so that just the way that we would talk about it in India and Indonesia and Mexico, is that possible? Or or perhaps maybe I'm asking too much. No, you should ask that much, Judd. I totally agree with the premise of your question. And I would agree with you that this approach of highlighting a few specific darling leaders or model countries, it can serve a role in signaling encouragement or showing possibilities. But overall, we in the democracy field talk a lot about the need to think about supporting institutions and not particular individuals. I think the same applies to how we on the U.S. side should think about U.S. democracy policy overall. It's much more about trends and institutions. So when it comes to the summit, I think this means we need to think about the trends that are ongoing in many African countries when it comes to democracy in the context of the globe. Unfortunately, democratic backsliding is a global phenomenon. And I would say there's a lot of trends in the African context, like closing space for civil society, extra constitutional expansion of executive power, questions about independence of the judiciary, sociopolitical tensions, rising digital authoritarianism. 
all of these have many parallels in the broader context, well outside the African continent. And so we should approach the summit with that in mind. And I'd also add at the same time, there's a lot of areas of progress that the rest of the world can learn from uh, when it comes to Africa, both being pushed by organizations like Accountability Lab and in particular places. Since the US is the one hosting the summit, it's also important to note that our own democracy is a work in progress. It's an imperfect democracy. I think our recent and longer history make that pretty clear. So the message overall, I think, can be that democracy does need constant tending, constant struggle. We are all on our own struggle to improve our own democracy. So then more specifically on what that means for how we can make the conversation about African democracy more three-dimensional, I do think the summit can start to get at some of this, although I don't think it's going to be the final world. I think it does start with a question of whom we invite when it comes to country invites. I would absolutely take your point on getting beyond the few model countries. I would say that we should obviously view African potential invites in the same context as the world. And I think we should pay particular attention to African countries that maybe they're not in the fully free zone in Freedom House, but they've made concrete progress over the last few years. They're moving in a positive direction. And if the summit is meant to help drive progress and commitments that are made around the summit are meant to help drive progress, I think maybe we should have particular consideration for some of those countries. They're not yet modeled, but they're showing an interest in working towards it. And then when it comes to other invites, absolutely following up on Tandakili's points, we need to keep front and center the reality that in many African countries that are not democracies, in many countries in the world that are not democracies, there are still small D Democrats whom we should highlight and invite. So activists, opposition members, human rights defenders, these need to be front and center. I think when we talk more broadly about the civil society invite list, it's obviously not just so simple as me saying invite civil society, because to your point, Jed, we don't want this to be tokenistic. You know, we could potentially invite tens of thousands of worthy civil society representatives. And we need to think clearly about how is this going to tie into the summit? How will there be a meaningful way to leverage their expertise and a meaningful way to have them participate? I think it may make sense to tie the civil society invites to those who have a particular expertise or mission related to the three agenda items I mentioned earlier on human rights, anti-corruption, and countering authoritarianism. And then finally, I think another element when we think about invites is the subnational level. In some countries, there are mayors or governors whom I think would probably be great candidates to invite even if the national level picture is really bleak. If done well, this can be sort of the start of a more nuanced three-dimensional approach to democracy support overall. Well, it's absolutely complicated, but if you're organizing the summit or supporting it, there's no better place than to follow uh, the work of Todd Dekile, watch what Accountability Lab is doing, and then read Francis's writing on this, which is superb. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today, and we'll see everyone again in two weeks. Thanks. Thank you. It was so nice to meet you all. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.